welcome and thanks for listening to Kamira Group's podcast, The Game of Fintech. Today, I'm your host, Danny Legrand, and I'm a partner here at Kamira Group and head up our consulting area. Our special guest today is our very own Peter Warren, who's the Joint Managing Director of Kamira Group. So hello, Pete, and welcome to your own podcast. Hey, Danny. Good to be back. Hopefully the tech works this time. We had a, yes, hopefully. We had an epic fail last time, so <laughs> let's see how we go. <laughs> Fingers crossed. All right, today we want to have a little bit of a team meeting, I guess, and do a check-in on our advice tech predictions and see how we're going so far, but also to delve a little deeper into the Investment Trends Advisor and Advice Tech Report for 2022. I think we can maybe start to draw some parallels between that report and our advice tech predictions, given um, what's playing out in the market right now. And um, as always, we like to give our listeners some practical tips along the way too. Sounds good. Plenty of noise out there at the moment. And um, I suppose if you make enough predictions, one of them has to come true eventually. So let's see how we went. (laughs) Fingers crossed. All right. Wealth tech predictions. So I just wanted to firstly go back to one of our 2022 predictions, um, which was around digital advice heating up. Back then, we predicted that many institutions would look to build solutions around digital advice. We said that this year, we said we got that one partially right when we did our 2023 report. But since then, as we all know, we've had a delivery of the QAR recommendations and we've heard Minister Stephen Jones discussing the report in public forums. And one of those big ticket items is digital advice. So I guess I just wanted to ask, what are your thoughts now? Are we are we changing our thinking on this? Um, what is digital advice and what problem really is it trying to solve? Yeah, I still think we're figuring that out as an industry. I think the QAR uh, highlighted we all have different views on what digital advice actually is. You can read the various submissions that were made by super funds, technology providers and other stakeholders. And there was definitely different views. Um, as recently as yesterday, I actually heard of a, a digital advice association being formed. Um, so I had a chat to them this morning, actually. So there'll be some media on that in the next day or two um, with a stated goal of actually trying to educate uh, the industry on the practicalities of digital advice, which I think is not a bad idea because everyone's got so many different interpretations. The thing that I'm secretly pleased about is the whole idea of building in-house bespoke digital advice solutions is sort of off the table for most institutions, super funds and others. Um, I think that's because a lot of it's due to the macro environment where, you know, the economy's looking uh, unpredictable and no one has a huge desire to take on big capital intensive projects without really clear um, goals or benefits as to why you would do it. So I'm really pleased because I think that really opens the door hopefully to the established technology players, but also some of the startups that uh, have been, you know, at this for a long time. I mean, some of the digital advice providers have been going nearly 10 years and mm-hmm. none of them have really landed a big client <laughs> that we've yeah. done yet. So. So the tide is turning, I think, but gee, this industry moves slow. Um, so I do feel for the digital advice providers, I think they and their investors need some certainty at the moment that super funds, product manufacturers are looking to invest in this space or co-invest. Um, I am aware of one digital advice provider that's taken on a fairly large investment for a product manufacturer. Uh, I can't share who that is. It's still confidential, I think, um, but it will come to light at some point in the next couple of months. Um, and I think given that no one wants to be first or last in this industry, 
um, once that gets announced, we'll probably see a few more. So um, I'm bullish on the space. I, I just worry that some of these startups may run out of money before they get that all important customer. So um, anything I think that this industry can do to bring that whole digital advice strategy to life and the importance of it uh, is a good thing. And I feel that we'll talk about QAR maybe later, but I do feel the one area that Levy was quite bullish on and even uh, publicly disclosed she was using was digital advice for herself, for her and her family. So, I mean, if it's going to work for someone like Michelle Levy, then maybe maybe we do need to lean into this a bit more. Yeah. And do you think even as an industry, we really grasp the concept of what digital advice is? I feel like we, we might have different views as to what is actually digital advice and, and how that can help our clients potentially as a, as, um, a smaller advice business, not not part of a institutional um, super fund or something like that. Do you think we sort of need a little bit more um, understanding of what that actually means and how it can help our advice businesses? Yeah, I mean, you know, advisors more than I do, Danny. You know, they they're so um, hesitant often to embrace new technology, and I think anything that particularly gets in the middle of their relationship with a client um, is sort of treated even with softer gloves by an advisor. So, um, you know, the guys at Open Invest have had some wins with this, getting uh, self-licensed businesses to um, build sort of straight-to-consumer offers, usually through a managed account solution or direct from a fund manager. Very investment-centric, though, um, not really a holistic advice approach, which they would admit. Um, but that, to me, says there's appetite. I would suggest that the... There's two camps, the sort of the smaller IFAs or smaller practices, this just isn't on the radar. They've got far more pressing issues around their business model and their cost to serve and all those things that are causing challenges for all small businesses, frankly. But certainly um, the bigger practices, um, and when I mean bigger, I mean $10 million turnover type businesses who have got bigger books of previously advised clients or just can't meet um, even the referrals that are coming through from clients or children of clients are probably going to be the first ones in this space. Um, so, yeah, I, I, they'll, they'll move slower. It, 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 I, I wouldn't be building a, a whole business model on that. I'm getting advisors to launch in-house digital advice solutions, but maybe it's a good adjunct to the solutions they're using for comprehensive advice to have a digital capability. And mm -hmm. some of the tech advisors are doing that. Yeah. Yeah, and sort of, I guess, something that might, may reach, um, to your point about Michelle Levy and her family as well, maybe sort of tackling that intergenerational transfer of wealth yep. piece as well. We've got younger clients who are more tech savvy and, you know, more, you know, want, want the quick advice and, and, the, and the quick wins. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. All right. So on to our 2023 predictions. Um, prediction one. So our first prediction for 2023 was and is still startups stop a tough year ahead. So just to recap, we called out the fact that venture funding seems to be drying up and that competition for funding is only going to get more intense. We predicted that startups in their early phases may not have raised enough capital and could start to struggle this year. We also called out the fact that some tech companies have made over-enthusiastic promises to customers and this could essentially start to backfire. And I, I guess I sort of feel like we're really starting to see this play out in, in front of our eyes. And um, the other thing I guess to note too is that 
you know, we still have this issue with a shrinking advisor market here in Australia, and I've pretty much halved the amount of advisors since 2019, um, sitting at around 15,500 now. So that dynamic is still presenting a challenge um, for tech providers to make significant inroads in Australia. What do you think about this one? Uh, yeah, I think we're just at the, the start of a bit of a bloodbath, frankly. I think um, you're certainly seeing that in other markets, certainly in the US. Um, there's sort of a, a few layers to it, I guess. I mean, there are a bunch of startups in our industry who are entirely bootstrapped. So by bootstrapped, I mean entirely funded by the founders, um, pretty lean, so they're not spending huge amounts of money and they've just sort of slowly chipped away at it and they'll probably be fine. They'll, they'll just sort of scale back development or just go slower or whatever they need to do to survive. And that's um, something you can do. But particularly if you've raised outside venture capital, um, there's usually two things going on. There's a race to spend the money because venture firms want to see you grow at a fast rate. And they mm -hmm. sort of, you're almost on a ticking clock to get product market fit and get validity to your business model and get to your next capital raise. Of course, the, the assumption is that you can then raise the capital at the next, um, the next juncture. So um, certainly businesses that are proving product market fit and are growing are, are getting further investment. No problem. Um, in fact, there's more competition for good, good businesses now than mm. ever. Um, mm. But if you haven't hit the mark, if you haven't met your promises for customer acquisition or for the solution itself, uh, you, you could be in trouble, particularly where you've maybe gone for an accelerated growth trajectory. You've hired lots of developers. You've spent a lot of sales mm. and marketing, um, just all that common sense sort of, sort of stuff um, playing out. Um, so um, there's definitely a few who have, you know, gone to the wall. Um, probably the most notable one was Creative Mass, went into voluntary administration a couple of weeks ago. Um, so mm -hmm. that's public knowledge now. There's an ASIC notice about that. Um, that's probably not a bad example of a business that was on an accelerated growth trajectory, raised lots of external capital from what we understand. Um, but, you know, the burn rate per month, the cash going out of it was probably pretty high. Yeah. And uh, throwing and, you know, to keep businesses like that going, you're not talking about a few hundred grand extra tipping in from the friends and family kind of thing. You're talking about in the many millions to keep those businesses going for the foreseeable future. So that that's a really unfortunate story um, mm -hmm. because, you know, they probably hired lots of good people. Um, we want more advice tech competition. Um, there was some validity to that strategy, building something really cool on Salesforce that maybe still holds some merit. But as, as always, like any business, it's just around execution. And um, if some of those assumptions in any startup, if you, you make some assumptions around your growth and your business model, if those assumptions don't hold up in the future, the tide goes out. So um, not sure what's going to happen with that business. There's probably some good core tech there that will end up in someone's hands. Um, they do have a couple of key institutional customers who probably have a vested interest in seeing it you know, continue because they've mm -hmm. invested themselves. Um, but, you know, an, an interesting story there and probably will be a bit of a reference case, I think, for future um, for all businesses that are trying to tackle this wealth industry it's, in Australia. It's, it's harder than people think, as we've always said. Um, yeah. And uh, you, you need very, very patient capital <laughs> to get it going. And venture funding is not patient. Yeah. And, you know, of course, that leaves a trail of destruction as well, I guess, for the advisors that have been onboarded into creative mass and now have to 
find yep. another solution yep. um, that's big upheaval for us yeah. smaller business to have to go through so you know as, as always giving some practical tips out here we can't stress how important it is to do your due diligence on your technology providers um, and you know really sort of look at that um, the long-term um, prospects of, of that business and and really sort of delve as deep as you possibly can in there to make sure that you've got a technology partner that is going to be with you um, and support your business for the long term. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's a good lesson. I mean, I think particularly where you're, um, where you're not talking about a piece of tech that's really core to your business. So if it sort mm. of touches the CRM particularly, um, then you, you have to be extra careful. I think anything with CRM, client portal, I'd probably put in this category too, that where security is really important and all those things, I think, extra diligence. Um, maybe some of the other things like client engagement tools and the nice to haves are not as critical where you can sort of interchange them if something yeah. went wrong down the track. But I think you've got to apply a, a bit of a risk adjusted measure on um, if this thing fails, what would it do to my business? Is probably mm-hmm. a fundamental question. Um, it's probably a little different. The creative mass issue is probably a little different to um, C-Cube, which happened a few years ago. Um, that that business was a custom CRM. So I'm, I'm aware that those customers were given literally before open markets bought it, were given three weeks to get their data out. Otherwise, mm. the servers were being turned off. The AWS servers being turned off. They would have lost their data. Um, the creative mass issue will be different because all those customers are on Salesforce. So they're going to be okay, provided they keep paying their Salesforce bills. Um, yeah. But as you know, Danny, there's a a big decision there to be made about, well, what next you know, yeah. with Salesforce particularly. So, um, yeah, th- these stories are really hard. Don't like, you know, for a lot of reasons, not good for anybody because we, we want advisors to try new things and, mm-hmm. you know, take take some bets with technology and someone's got to be the first customer, right? That's the other thing you're forgetting. Yeah. Um, but there's probably some light touch due diligence that you can do both initially and along the way, and you put a lot of content out, Danny, about that on socials, that I think um, would probably help you avoid some of the landmines that may be obvious to people like us, but maybe not so obvious to people that don't do this every day. Yeah, and that's a good point too. Being a first mover, um, you know, can can be a really positive thing as well. You know, you get to grow with the technology. You get to have some mm. really solid in- inputs into the direction of that technology obviously you're going to get your handheld. You're going to have all the support um, available to you being a first mover. Uh, and, you know, the, the tech provider obviously wants you to have a really good experience. So, you know, that could actually be a really positive thing uh, yeah. as well. I just caution you either be a customer or a shareholder. Maybe don't be both. Yes. Because I think that's when people lose perspective in their relationship with their tech provider. And we've certainly come across quite a few incidents of, you know, tech being recommended and those things. And it turns out the users are all shareholders and it's not transparent. And um, anyway, uh, yeah. I think that's fairly self-evident that that's not a good place to be. Yeah, good point. All right, moving on to prediction two. So this is uh, client portal use goes mainstream. So I guess it's fair to say most of our clients here at Fenura currently don't have a client portal solution in place. And that it goes really hand in hand with the investment trends data where we see around about 40% of advice businesses currently using a client portal. Um, And our clients are coming to us for a variety of reasons, but it seems to me recently, um, I don't know if you agree here, our clients are coming to us um, with client portal at top of mind. And that is because of the cybersecurity issue being uh, at the forefront, I guess, of everybody's minds. We've had 
Medibank, Optus, now Latitude data breaches as well. Um, you know, we know that financial planners are at extreme risks for cyber attacks given the personal data that they hold. And, you know, to be honest, we're not very good as, at an in, in, as an industry at handling that personal data. We still are emailing sensitive documents to our clients, um, fact finds, advice documents with all the personal information. Um, you know, we know that that can be intercepted really easily. So client portals obviously help to solve that problem or help to at least support um, good cybersecurity measures. Um, and just to sort of, I guess, draw the draw the information in again about cybercrime. Every seven minutes we've got a cybercrime incident in Australia that's being reported and the average cost of those cyber reports are between $39,000 and $88,000. So this is really serious for a financial planning business. That's obviously a, um, a huge hit if, if you get hit with one of those cyber incidences. Um, we do hold the most sensitive personal information about our clients and, um, you know, client portals do uh, serve that cybersecurity perspective, but they um, also help, you know, onboarding with a client as well. So they can really hit a, a, an efficiency and a pain point in a business and, and help a business do that. So we're, as usual, really pleased to see end-to-end -end advice tech investing heavily in client portal offerings. Um, and that seems to be sort of increasing. A lot of focus is being put into these areas. We have the standalone solutions as well um, that we're seeing in market as well. What do you think about this prediction that we, I feel like we're really getting this one right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, um, we're not the only ones talking about it. There's been some other um, industry sort of experts uh, promoting this as well as a, as a key pillar for a tech stack. So yeah, it's great. I'm really glad to see it. I'd like there to be, you know, hopefully more choice for advisors. There's only really a couple of really solid ones in sort of Fenura's opinion um, mm -hmm. who do all those things. Um, still strongly encourage people to resist the urge to build their own portals and mm -hmm. exhaust your options with the existing tech you've got um, before you go too far afield um, or get too carried away and think about the job you want that portal to do, which yeah. if the North Star is data protection, then work backwards from that. Um, and, uh, and, and I, but I think the ch challenge is, I mean, even in that Vestant Trends data where I think 40, 45% of clients have access to a portal, I think a lot are still just using the platform as their main portal, mm -hmm. which is sort of a different job in reality. And particularly if you're a financial planning business, like many to do accounting, state planning, yeah. other, other services for clients, then you're going to need that portal to do more things than a platform does, mm -hmm. frankly. So, um, really looking to see, hoping to see more investment from the major technology providers in their portal capability, hopefully more mobile friendly, because so many portals have really only work properly on a desktop, which, you know, nobody, everyone does stuff with their phones now, frankly. So yeah. um, that will be a big battleground. And I think there's a couple of key providers that are going to win in <clears> that <throat> space. Um, so yeah, Daniel, I think, I think it's great. But as you know, what do you think? I mean, because it, it's putting a portal in is really different. It's not like changing fact find or changing mm. modeling software. It, it then changes the relationship you have with a client, how you do business with a client. So there's a big change management piece, right? Yeah. That. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's right. It's it's really the only piece of advice tech that hits the end client outside of the platform, um, client portals, obviously, or portal offerings. So um, yeah, I agree. I think it's something that you would need to pilot with a, with a bunch of your clients. I think advisors, you know, we find this as well, are sometimes afraid of rolling client portals out to their clients. They think they're not going to be able to handle or um, understand how to use mm. that client portal. But I think we always need to remember COVID 
you know, COVID happened and we all had to go online to do everything, yeah. um, including no matter what age you were, you had to go online to do your stuff. So yeah. um, we're sort of, it's here now. So yeah. I don't think that we should be afraid of that. And I think it can really uplift that service that you provide to your clients, that they're getting good service from other um, services that, that they're getting outside of financial advice, um, most likely using technology and 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 that sort of thing. So I think we sort of really don't need to be afraid of that. It's a good thing to embrace. Um, but yes, I think it's, again, it's change management, like you say, and it's, it's yep. a baby steps approach. And, you know, you need to remember that uh, your clients might be calling you for tech support now because <laughs> the client can't log in and, yeah. and that sort of thing. So you're going to have to train your team up as to yep. how to become a, a, a support person. Yeah. But hopefully well. the efficiency you get will, <clears throat> you know, create yeah. space for, for that extra work. And you're totally right. I mean, you, we all forget, like a year ago, we couldn't go get a coffee without using our COVID safe mm. app and showing our vaccination. I mean, didn't matter how, how old you were, who you were, you had to show that. So, you know, I think you're so right. And there's just this awesome window we've got now with clients with the cyber awareness piece really cutting through mm. mainstream um, to sell this as a real benefit. And I wouldn't be surprised in the fears of clients kind of expect this anyway. Um, and and hearing noise too from some licensees, particularly who are looking at really tightening down on this particular sharing of stuff over email and what tends to happen at the moment, um, mm -hmm. and locking this down and saying you you must use portals in future to secure clients and um, you know that and that's something that you know the UK the guys over in Teleflow have been talking about a long time. That's just the way of doing business over there. Frankly. Yeah, um, they've been on that journey for a long time and probably why they invested in their tech. So yep. So fingers crossed. Um, Tech providers keep investing in capability. I think it's going to be a key differentiator for the future. Um, and um, hopefully we get more advisors sharing their stories of how they've successfully got clients to adopt it and change their business model around it because you're totally right. That's the that's the key thing to change. Yeah. Yeah. Good one. Great. I think we're doing well so far with our predictions. Fingers crossed. Um, okay. Prediction for platform tech arms race bros. So... The data suggests that we might be looking at a three-horse race between Hub24, Macquarie, and NetWealth. Uh, we do think that Premium might be likely to be involved in an M&A transaction at some stage this year in 2023. Uh, we've seen the tides turn against the ex-bank players with evaporating distribution and ageing technology and probably ongoing service level issues for advisors is a big one as well with the platforms. Uh, but yep. we do know that we are going to start to see some more of those contemporary offers this year from CFS and, and Macquarie with the really big technology overhaul. Yep. Um, investment Trends Report does demonstrate the platforms are seriously considering their, their offer from a tech perspective and are looking to move into offering solutions that can really sort of dig a little bit deeper and help with that back office um, and the advice journey um, as well when it comes to implementation and client reviews and that sort of thing. Um, but also when engaging with clients as well. So like you, you pointed out before, client portals are sort of really are a, a part of platforms, but platforms are sort of making that look a lot cooler, I guess, um, as well and investing in, in that visual for clients and that experience for clients as well. What do you think? Where are platforms headed when it comes to supporting advice businesses outside of the traditional way that they do with investment reporting and portfolio yeah. management and transactional functionality? Oh. Yeah, this is, um, some may be cynical about this, but I think the facts remain that the balance sheet, the capital in our industry and wealth is concentrated in the platform providers. Mm -hmm. So Hub, NetWealth, Macquarie, BT, CFS, and even if you look at the businesses like A&P and IWF, 
uh, their shareholders apportion most of the value to their product businesses, not their advice businesses. That's always been that way, just how it is today. So um, if you look at Wexit, you know, the exit of banks and licensees owned by banks from the industry, we've sort of been left with, uh, in reality, a whole bunch of you know, effectively smaller licensees. Whilst have lots of advisors, they've got um, less capital than probably mm-hmm. they don't have a parent anymore in most cases. So, um, I, controversial. I, I kind of feel like platforms are going to be the quasi licensee service providers of the future because who else is there in reality to do yeah. this at scale? Um, they have a distribution challenge because halving advisor numbers affects their business. So mm-hmm. they want to build more loyalty and trust and, 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 and as platforms are less and less differentiated, let's be honest, it's a price game in a lot yeah. of cases. They're, they're throwing everything at winning more share of business. And that usually involves tech and services. Mm-hmm. Um, but the tide, I mean, you look at the recent numbers, the 60 to 70% of net flows are going to those top three providers still, NetHub, NetWealth, Macquarie. Um, interesting enough, NetWealth put out some market updates yesterday or the day before and said, you know, flows are a bit flatter. So the mm-hmm. share price got whacked 10%. So maybe in there seeing a bit of a slowdown in transitions and all those things that are happening. Um, but, you know, the tide's very much turning to those top three. Um, that tends to be what happens in most industries that are hyper-competitive. You, you usually end up with one or two or three that kind of dominate in mm-hmm. most spaces. Um, but, but there's, you know, we know um, a lot of capital being spent by the others to sort of play catch up and a lot of fun that they're holding as well. So um, it's a great time to be an advisor choosing a platform because they're so, they're so competitive and the price is great. So it's great outcomes to consumers. And we still live in a best interest world. So the reality is that advisors still have to make reasonable efforts to compare platforms and choose the right one, mm-hmm. every client. Yeah. So um, this war is going to go on, I think, for another uh, for a while. I think, though, M&A is inevitable because, like we've seen in the US, and I think our report spoke about it, that, you know, um, 85% of all US flows um, in the RIA or IFA equivalent space go to the top three custodians in the US. Mm -hmm. And even then, we saw consolidation amongst those top um, providers. Yeah. So, um, and that kind of is the basis behind, to an extent, the premium prediction that an M&A outcome is likely there, only because premium got some really unique tech for non-custodial assets. So I think it's quite desirable. Um, so we watch with interest for that. So yeah, it's a really interesting space, huge amounts of focus and capital at this point, but um, the inescapable truth is that their distribution model, which is the advisors have greatly shrunk. Uh, and certainly those advise, those platforms like Hub and NetWealth and to an extent Macquarie, who for a long time have had a strategy based on IFA effectively distribution or non-aligned mm-hmm. distribution, they're kind of winning. And I think, those other platforms may, you know, do well to look at well, what's driving that and how do we change that. So, um, yeah, really interesting space, um, and we shall see yeah. how it plays out. I think if we're sort of looking about uh, at the practical tips for advice businesses on, um, you know, if they're looking to other platforms, I guess, again, doing due diligence on those platforms and starting to ask those questions that you'd probably ask of your advice tech provider or your core CRM provider yeah. as to what does your technology roadmap look like from a, from a tech perspective and um, how's that going to support the CRM that I'm using potentially and yeah. what sort of integrations do you have and how do they look 
um, yeah. that sort of those sort of questions because that's really going to help the back office at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and the other thing that's going to be really interesting to see play out. Um, we don't know a lot of detail, obviously, but you know, Iris has sort of gone quite public with trying to build more infrastructure for the industry that allows software and platforms to talk to each other mm-hmm. more effectively, particularly with client onboarding and trading execution. Um, and how platforms think about that strategically is really important to, you know, we know platforms have invested an awful lot of man- amount of money on advisor experience, uh, you know, UX and systems and various things and how much of that then lives in the planning software versus mm-hmm. the platform software. And um, you've got some providers who are trying to go end-to-end, like Dash are trying to build an end-to-end sort of story where it's all in one shop, um, mm-hmm. arguably, which, you know, people have different views on. But it's um, – so, yeah, so the reality is, though, because the platform valuations are so high still, Net Wealth and Harbour still multi-billion dollar businesses, um, there's still a lot of capital – hungry capital to invest in these types of businesses, even for the chance of getting it right. Yeah. Um, so, but, but not seeing what happened in the U S and, and knowing what advisor numbers are doing, you just can't help but think there's going to be some sort of log- likely consolidation in platforms mm-hmm. um, at some time uh, or yeah. Privatization or various things will play out. I think with yeah. that, but um, no, I'd say those predictions are fairly, fairly on track. Um, uh and I think, you know, the Investor Trends data still says that most advice firms use more than three platforms still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So no one's really getting a monogamous relationship with a platform no. provider yet. And that's that's a piece of the puzzle, I think, at yeah. some point. Yeah, good point. <laughs> All right. Prediction number five, fewer foreign raiders is our prediction here. So we've seen a flood of foreign raiders in Australia over the past few years. Um, sort of, I think, from the beginning of 2019, we started to really sort of see that um, take take place. Um, we have observed that gaining traction here as a tech provider from um, a different jurisdiction has been difficult, and that's probably due to an underestimation of the localization requirements to get a solution up and running here in Australia. As we know, um, overhauling technology and advice business is a massive undertaking, so the offer needs to be really compelling for advisors to make that decision to jump to another solution. Again, you know, we keep talking about it, the number of advisors has shrunk significantly. Um, but that being said, advisors are looking for the superior support when it comes to onboarding into a new, new solution and that also that ongoing support into how to get the most out of, out of those solutions. And some of those international players do that very, very well. Um, so what are we thinking here? Are we still sticking to this prediction for your foreign raiders? Yeah, I think so. Uh, in, in many, in certain certain um, aspects, we're hearing lots of noise around some of these multinational tech players looking to divest their overseas operations. So, you know, looking to either cut off Australia or cut off uh, UK or US or Europe or whatever they're doing. Um, so, a lot of businesses are on a, a simplification journey at the moment, and I would mm-hmm. suggest that if you sort of look at uh, a geography like Australia or somewhere else, which is uh, where you've got a subscale presence, your growth prospects don't look great. Mm-hmm. And you read those data points around, and if, particularly if your revenue is tied to advisor numbers, lesser yeah. extent, FUM or FUA, because I think the, the superannuation system makes Australia really desirable if you're in the FUM game. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're an advisor revenue type game, I think, yeah, I, I, I would suggest you'll see more of that. Um, so, the, so the players that we're sort of seeing still active in this market are probably ones that have been here a long time and are still sort of trying but interesting enough we're not they're not investing so they're not putting people on the ground locally they send a 
be getting people to service Australia from other geographies and, you know, just mm -hmm. sort of, I don't know, toe in the water, Danny, I suppose you'd call it for many at this point. Yeah. But I'd be really surprised if a, a big, uh, you know, a big, a new global player emerged from nowhere and said, we're going to, we're going to challenge the Australian advice tech, well tech market. I'd be mm -hmm. amazed. Um, yeah. It's kind of, it, you know, we talk about this a lot. We really want global players here. We really want to have a market that's rich with options. Um, you know, it's, it's good to, to have the options and it, it's good for advisors that, um, you know, we, we all advice businesses do certain things differently in the way that they run their businesses and those solutions can potentially serve them really well. Um, you know, we don't want to be tied to any, any one particular solution if, if we can help it, but, um, you know, it's, it's sort of disappointing, but, but those dynamics in terms of the, the actual advisors that are the advisor numbers mm. here. Are, is I, really I, I think what's more likely to happen is what we've seen already, which is private equity and foreign capital investing in advice businesses yeah. themselves. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, on the surface of it, you look at Australia and go, well, shrinking advisor numbers, massively growing savings pool of retirement, big advice supply gap, um, mm -hmm. and relatively capital constrained AFSL model. Um, it's right for these well-backed, well, um, sort of, um, credentialed, um, advice specialist providers from the U S particularly, I would say, who have mm -hmm. got many, many billions in assets under management, hundreds of employees. I think that had come out here in a meaningful way. Uh, it wasn't lost on me that, you know, Lumiant raised some money from Savant, which is a really well-known and highly respected, um, wealth business in the U S I wouldn't be surprised to see them make some investments in Australian advice businesses because it's a really good market from that mm -hmm. perspective. So, um, maybe it's less about foreign tech coming and more about foreign advice models coming to Australia. Um, yeah. and to be honest, I think we are capital constrained in, in advice in Australia. We're pretty cottage still. So, um, I think the guys at focus financial been doing, uh, AZNGA have been doing it and net capital into the advice businesses is a really good thing. So I, I'm probably seeing that more than on the tech side currently. Mm. Interesting. Lots to look out for in that area. <laughs> All right, so they're going a little bit off topic here, but I just wanted to talk to you about the SOA chatter that's going on at the moment. So as we know, QAR is out there now. Um, the government seems to be paying attention and as an industry, or I guess at least from a media perspective, it seems that we have this hyper-focus on the SOA recommendation that was in the QAR. Um, report. So just a reminder, I'll just try and quickly summarise this of what that recommendation actually is. So the requirement to provide a statement of advice or a record of advice should be replaced with the requirement for providers of personal advice to re retail clients to maintain complete records of the advice provided and to provide written advice on request by the client. Clients should be asked whether they would like written advice before or at the time the advice is provided and a request for written advice is required to be made before or at the time the advice is provided. There's a little bit more to it, but I'm, I won't go into that. So the way I understand that recommendation is that you're still going to have to have some sort of advice document or whatever you want to call it available for your client because they could potentially ask you for it and you will need to provide that to them. Um, so I think we're all aware that QAR needs to go through further consultation processes and through government to get any traction. And we know this is going to take some time. We didn't really get any clear understanding of timeframes from 
Minister Stephen Jones, other than that, it has to go through the process. And he did point at um, the recommendations that were regulatory rather than legislative could potentially be attacked first. So if you really want to take and try and take a, um, the heat off advice businesses, I really feel like we should be attacking fee consent first and foremost. Every single one of our clients, I'm, say, I'm going to say 100% of our clients, um, when we run through their technology and how they're using it currently, have a really big um, issue with fee consent and the way that it's managed. And it takes a long time to um, to run through that process in an advice business. So um, we also know that most of our clients wouldn't ditch the SOA should things change. They see it as important to cover what they've recommended to their clients, but also it does form part of their value proposition. And sure, we can cut it back. That would definitely help. But doesn't really appear to me to be the key problem we're trying to solve here. Do you agree or are on the same page here? You know, I agree. Um, <laughs> look, a uh, um, couple of things. I, I, first of all, somehow at some juncture in the last 18 months, in some meeting room somewhere in Australia, it was decided the SOA was the defenceless um, sort of burning platform that everyone would point to as the key issue in the financial you know, slowing up the financial advice industry in Australia. It's just not accurate. Mm -hmm. um, so I think some of the data that was produced by um, KPMG did a report on SOA costs and those things were just, you know, factually missing a lot mm -hmm. of a lot of um, breadth, I think, because they only surveyed a certain number of practices that didn't actually disclose who they were. And you and I both know there's a huge difference between how certain businesses produce advice and others and how much they've invested in their advice delivery technology. And, mm -hmm. you know, so there'd be a wide spectrum of how what yeah. SOAs actually cost to produce. So it's just sort of the first thing I just want to put on the table um, that it was just easy to point to the SOA as this thing because no one really, you know, the SOAs couldn't fight for, to defend themselves. <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a point that, you know, which was not lost, that SOAs are way too long, mm -hmm. full of text. I remember my wife got her first SOA from our advisor. She works in the legal industry and she was staggered by how mm -hmm. poorly it was written, the layout, the lack of white space. And she just said, how, how am I meant to interpret this? And she was bang on. Yeah. And that was, you know, a SOA produced out of an X-Plan wizard and there was nothing wrong with it. Stru structurally, it was all good, but... It's just that a lot of that stuff was licensee gump and unnecessary text that could be put in there. So I think everyone agrees on that. But if you actually look at the ASIC um, guidelines for SOAs, it's pretty clear and clear, concise and effective. Um, mm -hmm. And I just wonder, are we going to end up when ASIC sort of goes away and is asked to do their work on reviewing the SOA requirements, they're going to come back with something pretty similar to what we have today? Yeah, yeah. I also find it pretty fascinating that uh, only as recently as on Monday when Professional Planner ran a, um, webinar with Michelle Levy and um, uh, on just where are we at with QAR predictions that she already sort of conceded that maybe ditching the document isn't the right approach. I, I get her intent, which is to say, hey, you shouldn't be prescribing at a legislation level what goes into a document mm -hmm. to the client advisor. It's pretty, that, that does make sense to me. It should be something that's more in regulation or guidelines for an APSL. Yeah. Um, but you're right, the practicalities are still that advisors, um, still want to give their clients something in writing. Um, I thought Matt Lawler from A&P made a really good observation when he said clients have selective memories, particularly when investment returns don't go the way we expect. 
and I think you got to put stuff in writing. The other thing for my experience, my mum has a financial advisor. She always sends me the ROAs or advice documents that um, her advisor produces for her mm -hmm. to read them. Um, and yeah. I do and scan them and that's so that that kind of applies. Yeah, there's so many layers to this, but you're a hundred percent of the money. If we can actually completely overhaul the fee consent process, the FDS mm -hmm. process, that is the massive win for this industry. Yeah. And I just hope the SOA debate doesn't get caught up in that. And I hope yes. we get on with the thing that's going to make the biggest difference. Um, shortening SOAs is not going to lower the cost of advice. I don't know a single advice business in Australia that's thinking about lowering their fees mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. And you'd also say that advice businesses actually, like the ones we talk to, they don't write that many SOAs. Like mm -hmm. they, they'll probably do a, maybe one or two a week, maybe. Yeah. Um, depends on the business and size and all those sort of things. But, you know, it's often when they change licensee or those things happen or they buy books of business. And that, they're the triggers for SOAs. So I, I just hope a bit of common sense prevails and we don't invest far too much time on fixing maybe a problem that's not as big as we think it is, mm -hmm. but actually we, we get right behind this fee consent FDS issue. That, yeah. that for me is the big one. Um, so yeah, it's just been a curiosity to me, the, the whole um, demonization of an, of an SOA. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I agree. And I think, you know, being an industry veteran and being around for a long time um, when we had cars and strategy papers, they were the two and three page documents and, you know, things fell off those SOAs and we, we did get um, problems with advice delivery to clients and yeah. hence the SOA was formed so that we could, you know, cover off those recommendations and yeah and give give good advice and all that sort of stuff back in those days. Um, and now we're sort of looking to take that away. Yeah, I, I'm with you. It doesn't sort of make a lot of sense. I think if you've got the right technology, again, you know, we're always going to talk about technology helping you do this yeah. stuff. Um, then it, yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not a huge deal. We certainly don't find it's one of the huge pain points when we're talking to our, um, clients on technology roadmaps and where no. they're experiencing those issues. It, SOA rarely comes up. Yeah. It does come up as, as a, you know, we need to revamp it or, or mm. revisit or, re, you know, Recode yeah. re a few things for sure. And I think we're to be careful what we wish for here, right? I mean, my, my first job in the industry was a power planner, and I remember getting chook scrap file notes from advisors and, you know, um, and instructions on what the advice was to be. And, you know, everyone's got different skills, but a lot of advisors are awesome in front of clients and really good at getting that personal information around goals and where people are heading and explaining difficult concepts. But when it comes to actually writing documents, that's maybe not a skill set that advisors typically mm -hmm. have. So, and I think paraplanners in particular, we put through a lot of stress, frankly, needlessly in the last six months saying their business models are relevant and, and all this stuff. It, it, nothing could be further from the truth. That mm -hmm. skill set of writing clear, concise advice, doing the modeling behind the scenes. Um, we still have a ridiculously complex and ever-changing superannuation and social security mm -hmm. system in Australia, which requires thoughtful modeling and strategy yeah. um, to go ahead that even with all the emerging technologies, I don't think you can get a computer to do. I think it's mm -hmm. hard in science. Um, and, and I think their, their skills are so needed for the future. So, um, you know, uh, flying a flag for the power planners here and saying that, their skills are, are incredibly valuable. And I think even by be careful what you wish for here, because if you strip away um, the need for advice docs, licensees 
you know, potentially could take their hands off the wheel and say, well, it's up to you now to solve that. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to have a whole bunch of people saying, well, what do we put in these things? What, you yeah. know, it, it can create more work actually just starting from scratch. I think anyone that's tried to build a PowerPoint slide from mm-hmm. scratch mm-hmm. to articulate advice to clients will tell you that it's better to at least have something structurally to work with um, uh, before you start. Even how Fenura gives advice to clients, we have a process and a structure we know works for communicating mm-hmm. a story. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the noise will die in this one. I, I do hope to see some of the stuff go to incorporation by reference so we don't have to put 40 pages of standard product text and just unnecessary repetition. Mm-hmm. But the actual content of the SLA will still be as you know challenging and thorough, have such thorough requirements to put in there that I still think it's going to take a few hours to do. Yeah. Anyway. yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, back to your point about power planners too, utilising those tools that are available in... Um, advice tech, they're complex, right? Cash flow modeling tools. You need yep. to understand how to use them. You need to understand how to work around um, how, some of the modeling features in there. And power planners have a really good grasp on how to do that. Our advisor is yep. going to want to sit there and actually sort of learn how to use those tools as well yep. as engaging with their clients and servicing yep. their so clients and that sort of thing. Never fear, power planners. Your jobs are very secure, in my opinion. <laughs> Agree. All right. Any final thoughts? Oh, look, I just want to, um, yeah, we'll probably wrap up soon, but I, I guess there's just a lot of noise still in the industry. Um, I was talking to a few tech providers today about it, and um, I, I think that, you know, you think about QAR, you think about all the emerging themes and technology and uncertainty, reg- unregulatory environments, and, you know, uh, even I look at our, our Slack channel at Fenura, and there's always something you know, different going on every day that we're chatting about. And I, I don't know, I, I would just, you know, something more probably counseling myself here more than <laughs> their clients, but I'd say uh, focusing on controllables is going to be a really important mm-hmm. theme for us for the, as an industry for the next 12 to 18 months. And we have so much opportunity, so many problems that need to be fixed irrespective of what happens to QAR. Yeah. I think the portal conversation is a great one for most businesses to pick up today and do something with irrespective. In fact, it could help underpin a QAR, you know, more friendly QAR environment. Um, and, and the only other thing I'd point out too, which I didn't expect to talk about today, I'm going to anyway, um, is, you know, I'm finding across advice businesses that we work with, people are getting a bit burnt out. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I just want to um, make a quick shout out to business owners who are, you know, running small and medium businesses who are just, just keep an eye on your employees at the moment. I think, I don't know whether it's post COVID Danny or too many teams meetings or what's going on mm. at digital worlds, but I even find myself, you know, my brain's not working as efficiently yeah. as it normally does. Um, so I don't know, maybe a bit less tech every day might not be a bad thing. Um, for businesses and simplifying what you do where possible. So, um, so I think my key things are, you know, less noise, less mm-hmm. industry chatter, and more focusing on the problems that you can actually control and solve. Kind of where yeah, I'm at. Yeah, I love it. I love it too with the with the teams meetings. I think because we generally most of us work from home or at least um, you know hybrid work from home and in the office and. With Teams meetings, you're, you're always available, right? If you've got a spot in your calendar, you can chuck a team meeting in there or somebody can book a time in with you. So you're not, you, when you're in an office, you might go out and grab a coffee or go yeah. and chat to your friends in the kitchen or whatever it might be. Um, we're not sort of taking those breaks that we are used to taking. So I completely understand the burnout, but it's meeting after meeting after meeting. Um, 
you know, it is a very real, real issue. I yeah, feel. and 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 maybe maybe that's a good north star for some technology decisions in the future. Is how do we make our employees' lives better? Yeah, and not just Love the tech it. we that use, lens but how we use it. Um, because you know, we, I mean, some firms we talk to, they'll use Slack or Teams, but then you find out they're all getting 130 emails a day on average and they're sharing mm-hmm. email. Yeah, it's just chaos. Um, yeah. So no wonder if people feel a bit overwhelmed. So mm-hmm. yeah, maybe that's something for us to think about for the future of how we guide clients on less overwhelm and what are yeah. the tools that can be used to make the employees' lives a bit better. Because um, yeah, I know most advice businesses don't want any more turnover or burnout than what they're experiencing already. And I just mm-hmm. have a feeling that, yeah, people are pretty tight. So yeah. yeah Love it. Let's finish on that note, I reckon. (laughs) Nice way to end the pod. Thank you. All right. Thank you to our very own Peter Wan for joining me today. We'll have further information in the show notes about how you can access the Investment Trends 2022 Advisor and Advice Technology Report. And thank you so much to our audience for listening to another episode of The Game of Fintech. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so that you can stay up to date. Follow us on LinkedIn or check out our website at www.fenurogroup.com. See you again soon.